There's um, something that we all have in common as we start this message this morning. Every one of us have missed something. And I want to talk about missing today. Uh, we've all missed our car keys. We've all missed our cell phones. Anybody in the room missed an appointment recently? You had an appointment. It was on the calendar. It was in your phone, but you spaced it. How about an exit? You missed an exit. You were on the way to a wedding. You're on the way to a funeral, and you missed an exit re- recently. Okay. Will you admit that in front of all of us? You will? All right. That, that's good. Now, that, that's okay if it's not something that's life-threatening. But if you miss, you want to miss some things too. You want to miss a health scare. You want to miss a career scare. There's things that you do want to miss. If it's raining and the car is skidding out of control, it's sliding, another car is sliding right toward you, you want to miss that, right? How many of you have like within feet or just inches have barely missed a deer, uh, anybody in the room, you don't know how you missed it, all right? How about some of you in the room, you didn't miss it. You actually hit the deer. All right, all right, confess your sins. Okay. Um, we, we've all missed things. And, and there's some things that you don't want to miss. You don't want to obviously miss your child's first steps, or you don't want to miss your child's first words, or you don't want to miss maybe a first communion or a baptism or, or a funeral. There are things in life that you do not want to miss. The Gospels tell a story, and we may look at this at Easter time, about one guy that missed it and one guy that got it, and they're both on the cross. It's a really interesting story. Jesus is in the middle, and there's a guy on one side of him, and he's hurling insults at Jesus. And there's another guy on the other side of the cross, and he's saying, you know, hey, can you remember me? And Jesus said, yeah, today I'll tell you, you will be with me in paradise. So it's interesting how one guy missed it, and one guy got it. But isn't that kind of true in life today? God has an extraordinary life that he wants all of us to live. But not everybody gets it. Some people get it, and some people miss it. Uh, how is it that a Chuck Colson, I want you to look at a picture of Chuck Colson. Maybe you don't remember Chuck Colson, but Chuck Colson was president of Richard Nixon's special counsel. And actually, Chuck Colson um, became a Christian in prison. He was one of the first guys during Watergate that actually went to prison. Uh, president Richard Nixon got pardoned, but this was his special counsel. And, and Chuck Colson became an incredible Christian in prison. He started going to Bible studies, and this great legal mind realized that the Bible was true, the Bible was right, and for the next 35 years, until he died about a year and a half ago, the next 35 years of his life, he then began to write and speak prolifically and outspokenly about Christianity. Now, how does he get it, and how does, how does a, Bill, a Bill Mayer not get it? And, and, and you see Bill Mayer on TV, and you, you hear Bill Mayer. How does a Chuck Colson get it? How does this controversial, you know, uh, television personality, how, how does he not get it? How, how does a Bethany Hamilton get it? Do you remember the story of Beth, Bethany Hamilton, soul surfer? She was 13 years old, 10 years ago, bitten by a 14-foot tiger shark, took off her left arm. She was a Christian then. She's an incredible Christian now. Being able to turn to Jesus after the shark attack kept me alive. And 10 years later, she's a pro surfer. And 10 years later, she announced, how, how does she get it? And then a genius like, you know, an inventor like, like Thomas Edison, like, like Thomas Edison, he, he, he never did get it. 
he, he never could seem to grasp, you know, that there was something that, how is it that some people get it and some people just don't get it? How do some people miss it? Well, today we have a man in John chapter 5, and we're going to see whether or not he gets it or whether or not he misses it. So in John chapter 5, we're going to look at about 15 of these verses, starting with verse 1, and we're going to study a man. The question today is, did he get it or did he miss it? And maybe more importantly, do I get it or am I one of those few who are missing it? So John chapter 1 Let's look at verse 1, and we have a little bit of background about this story. John 5, 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. We're not really sure which festival this is. There were three main festivals. We don't know, so we're not going to spend any time on this, okay? Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. So Jesus is just now given, John's just given us the background to our story. We've not even been introduced yet to our, our guy. But actually, this is a cool verse because they have found the sheep gate and they have found this pool. And in 1967, these, there's actually two pools were unearthed. And today you can go to the Basilica of St. Anne and you can actually see uh, this is a church there today in the northeast corner of Jerusalem, and you can actually see where this story took place. Now, there is in Jerusalem in the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is covered by five covered colonnades. So it's got like five big porches or porticos. Verse 3. Here, okay, now the music changes just a little bit. We're starting to lean into the story and get an understanding. That was all background. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of, of the waters. Now, the best guess is this, these pools were actually two pools, kind of trapezoid-type pools. They could probably have about 100 people. So, so the best guess is about 100 disabled people, blind people, lame people, um, you know, very, very needy people, paralyzed people. They're all around these pools. And, and, and the story was once a year, an angel of the Lord would come and stir the waters. And whoever was the first guy or first gal into the pool, as the story went, I don't know if it's true or not, but as the story went, they, they would get healed. And so verse 4 is not in most of the early manuscripts, but, I, but, but it's a footnote in your Bible. If you'll notice in some Bibles, verse 4 comes next after verse 3, which makes sense. But also sometimes it's left out and it goes from 3 to 5, and verse 4 is a footnote. All that means is some of the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 4. I'm going to read verse 4 because I think it fits within the context. So here's what verse 4 says. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one in the pool, after each of the disturbances, would be cured of whatever disease they had. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Now, here's verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So we're not really sure if the guy was 38 years old or if he'd been an invalid for 38 years. He may have been 48 he may have been 10 years old, he may have fallen off a cart, or he may have been born this way. We're not really sure. He's either 38 or he's older. But for whatever reason, for 38 years, he has been lying around this pool. For 38 years, he's been paralyzed. For 38 years, he's been an invalid. For 38 years, he's one of the guys that are hanging out at the pool and not really getting any better. Verse 6. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked this question, do you want to get well? I was 20 years old in Bible college when this came up. And I'll never forget the thoughts that went through my mind. I thought that was a, I know you're Jesus. I know you're the son of man. I know you're the smartest person in all the world. But I thought to myself at age 20, Jesus, isn't that kind of a dumb question? I was 20 back then. Shouldn't have said that about Jesus, but I I was thinking that. And because at 20 years of age, I just thought everybody would want to get well. I thought everybody would want to improve. I thought everybody would want growth, right? When you're 20, you have those kind of dreams. Now, a little bit older, I realize everybody doesn't want to get well. Because if the guy got well, that meant that he had responsibility. That meant that there were going to be expectations. If he got well, somebody was going to expect something out of him. No, the answer was he didn't want to get well. He was a beggar. And he came to the, to the pool and, and people fed him and people gave him alms. and He had zero responsibility. Jesus asks the question, the exact right question. Do you want to get well? Verse 7, sir, the envelope replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And what's he doing? he's, He's making excuses, but he's also being a realist, isn't he? You see, while I'm trying to get in, you see, Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I'm an invalid. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I'm paralyzed. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but I got some issues in my life. There's a reason I can't get to the water. Because while I'm trying to get in, Someone else goes down ahead of me, and I can't get into the water. Now, here's what Jesus is going to do for the man, and here's what Jesus is going to do with you. Exact same thing. Jesus is going to reveal himself to this man. And Jesus is going to come to this man again and again and again. And he's going to give this guy another opportunity to get it. This is what he does with you. This is what he's done in my life. He's come to you five times, 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, 25 times, and he puts all kind of people around you, and he will speak to your soul. And he will give you the opportunity to recognize who he is and what he's all about. And so this is what he does, and he has this opportunity. Now, I want to give you three guarantees And these are all in the bulletin. If you want to write these in, this is great. This is exactly what Jesus will do for you. It's exactly what Jesus will do for this man. So I'm going to explain these three, and then we'll tie it into the story, and we'll come back and tie it up to you, okay? Jesus will do all three of these. Number one, this is what Jesus will do. He will ask for the impossible. Don't ever mistake this. Jesus is going to ask this man for the impossible. He's going to ask the impossible from you. He's going to ask you to trust him. He's going to ask you to become transformed. He's going to ask you to go places that you can't go, to do things that you can't do, to become somebody that you could never become. Jesus is always, always, always in the impossible business. If it were possible, you wouldn't need Jesus. He's always going to ask you to do the impossible. And you will either get it or or you will not get it. But this is a universal guarantee. He's always coming to you. He's always coming to me. And he's asking for the impossible. Number two, I guarantee these are guarantees. Number two, he will remove all possibility of a relapse. I'm going to explain this in just a minute. But Jesus knows that we have a tendency to relapse. 
And so what he's doing in your life and what he's doing in my life is he's removing those possibilities where we can have a relapse. But number three, he will, go ahead, he will expect continued success. Those are three things that I can guarantee he's going to ask from you and for your life. Now let's look at the story. John chapter 5 verse 8. Here's what Jesus said. Number one, he said, get up. He's asking for the impossible. I can't get up. Did you forget? I'm an invalid. Jesus said, get up. I can't get up. Do you forget? I'm paralyzed. Jesus said, get up. He will always ask for the impossible. When Jesus said this to this man, that was incredibly impossible. He will always ask for the impossible. And he will ask the impossible from you, and he will ask the impossible from me. He said, get up. Number two, he said, pick up your mat. I can't pick up my mat. If I could pick up my mat, I would have picked up my mat. No, I'm removing all possibilities of excuses. I'm not going to give you excuses. Because if I leave the mat here, if you leave the mat here, then you might come back tomorrow. And you've been begging for 38 years. You've been hanging low for 38 years. For 38 years, you've checked out and had not had any responsibility. I'm telling you, pick up your mat. Take your mat home. Get rid of it. You can't come back here because you're no longer an invalid. Pick up your mat and go home. And number three, he says walk. He, he just wants continued success, continued growth, continued transformation in the man's life. Now, how does this apply to you? And how does this apply to you? Well, let's finish the story first. Let's go to John chapter 5, verse 9. At once the man was cured. That's cool, isn't it? At once. No, it didn't take forever. At once, the impossible became possible. He did pick up his mat, and he began to walk. Well, of course he did. He picked up his mat, and he walked. Look at the next verse. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. That always got Jesus in trouble. Verse 10. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And this is confusing. Because, again, when I was a little bit younger and I read this, I'm thinking, why did Jesus break the law? Because the Bible says, Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to break the law. I came to fulfill the law. And then I began to understand that Jesus never, ever, ever, never, ever broke the written law. But he, this is the oral law. And the oral law, which is the Mishnah, they began to write in more and more details and more and more things so that possibly you wouldn't even get close. They called those fence laws. And I touched on that last week. Jesus kept the Big Ten. Everybody knows the Big Ten Commandments. As you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you find about another 613 laws, okay? But then the Jewish people added oral law. They added about another 300,000 of what's called fence laws. Jesus broke the fence laws. Jesus broke the oral law, but he never, ever broke the written law of, of Moses, and so this got him in trouble. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat, verse 11. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fella? I think it's funny. Who is this dude? Who is this joker? Who is this guy who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? Verse 13, he said, well, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away uh, into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple. Now, this is cool. 
Because you see, Jesus didn't come to him just one time. For whatever reason, Jesus came, and there may have been a hundred guys at the pool, but he picked the one guy out and he healed him. Pick up your mat and walk. The guy doesn't know who it is. The authorities come to him and said, who healed you on the Sabbath? I don't know. So now, second time, Jesus comes to him. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He missed it. Somebody did something for him that nobody else could do. And instead of enjoying the favor of his Savior, he chose to enjoy the favor of man. He missed the second opportunity. This guy missed it. Jesus came to him. He missed it. Jesus came back to him, and he, and he still missed it. You see, one of the things I've noticed is that Jesus doesn't come to you just once or twice. When I was younger, a couple of preachers in different places would say things like, if you don't know how to share your faith, you may be the only person. And you may bumble someone's opportunity. And if you bumble someone's opportunity, they're going to spend eternity separated from God. You know what? I've come to realize that this is far too important for God to put this all on one person's skill set. What I've began to observe is Jesus doesn't come to you once. He doesn't come to you twice. He doesn't come to you three or four times. This is so important to him. He will come to you in a plethora of ways. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get good at sharing your faith. Don't go tomorrow and say, my preacher said we can screw this up and it doesn't really matter. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. What I am saying is this. This is so valuable to God. Now think about your own life, especially those of you that became Christians a little bit later in life. Maybe you were 40 or 50 or 60 years old, and think back of how many different ways God had been speaking to you over the course of 40 or 50 years. God uses a lot of different opportunities. Maybe it was somebody on radio. It was a radio verse. You were looking for the rock and roll station, and all of a sudden you hear a verse, and that verse just rang in your soul. Or maybe it was late at night, and you're going through the TV channels, and you can't sleep, and it's an old classic Billy Graham rerun, one of his you know, things. And so you're watching this this conference and you hear a little message of Billy Graham. Maybe you were discouraged or depressed and can't sleep and you get up in the middle of the night and it's a hotel room and you pull out the drawer and it's a Gideon Bible. Maybe he was a grandfather. I have a friend of mine who says when he was six years old, the grandfather was hard of hearing. And every night the grandfather would get down on his knees before his bed and he would pray for the whole family. He'd pray for everybody's faults and sins and struggles and the grandfather couldn't hear. He took out his hearing aid. He said everybody in the house could hear the grandfather praying. Their name would always come up and they knew that grandfather knew where they were struggling. He was six years old and his grandfather died a year later and he could still remember the prayers of that grandfather for him to become a Christian. You, you, you don't... God's not going to limit this just to one thing. You've seen this. You've experienced this. Perhaps you got to be next to the desk of a believer, and that believer was sharing his or her faith. You got to be in a family where only one or two people, my whole family were Christians, but those one or two people, they shared their faith with you. They sowed seeds in your life. 
Maybe you're the one person in your family. Maybe you're the one person in your neighborhood. Maybe you're the one person in in your work. And, And God's placed you there to sow the seeds. But Jesus Christ will come to you again and again and again and again. Occasionally, I'm being called to ask, you know, if somebody's about to die and, or somebody out of town calls me and says, you know, somebody in my family's about to die, well, what, what do I do? And that person just feels the weight of the world. That person just feels like, man, if I don't share my faith the right way, you know, 93-year-old grandpa's going to die and, and, go, and go to hell forever. Well, you know what I think? Grandpa's probably already had 50 opportunities. I'm not saying you shouldn't share your faith with grandpa. I'm not saying you shouldn't take advantage of that opportunity and ask his permission to tell you why you believe what you believe. But what I've begun to realize is this is so valuable to your heavenly father. He's not going to make this all on just one opportunity. He will come again and reveal himself again and reveal himself again and reveal himself again to you and to me. And a whole lot of people are getting it. A whole lot of people are realizing that life's bigger than themselves. A whole lot of people today are finding Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their incredible Savior. So, what I said earlier applies to you and it applies to me. Number one, he will ask you for the impossible. Look at this. Every one of you in the room, he's asking for the impossible. He's asking for you to forgive somebody. He's asking for you to become transformed. He's asking for you to live for him in a great way. He's asking for you to be his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece. He's asking for you to forgive yourself and forgive other people around you. He's coming to you and asking for the impossible, that the unclean becomes clean, that those who are filled with shame now are glory bearers and image reflectors of the kingdom of God. He will always, always come to you and ask you for the impossible. That's what makes him God. That's what makes him so special. He comes to you and asks you to do and become things that you could never do on your own. I, I, I just, it's amazing to me when I look back even at my own life and I realize at age 13 and 14, I stuttered. And this little boy at 13 or 14 from Indiana that stuttered is now standing before you and preaching his gospel and teaching his gospel every single week. That, is, that was impossible at age 13 or 14. Impossible for that to happen. Number two, he will remove all possibilities of a relapse. Now, I'm not saying that you don't sometimes slip. I'm not saying that sometimes you don't go backwards, but he won't let you stay there. He won't let you relapse. He will remove friends He will remove jobs. He will remove people. He will remove habits. He will remove all those things from you. And just keeping with that whole ministry analogy kind of thing with with me is, you know, people ask me, have you ever thought about quitting the ministry? Well, of course I've thought about quitting the ministry. Nobody in their right mind would ever sign up for this. I have a friend of mine named Wally Rendell. He's preached at the same church for 35 years in Lexington, Kentucky. A bunch of us, when we were younger, were invited to come to a conference, and Wally was the speaker, and we were asking Wally questions, and some guy said, Wally, have you ever thought about quitting the ministry? He starts laughing. He just starts laughing. He said, yeah, every Sunday between first and second service. (laughs) 
He's not going to let you relapse. He won't let you go back where you were. Now, you may go back there for a second, but you've got to pick up your mat and go. And he expects continued growth. Number three, continued growth and continued success. He who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion until Christ Jesus. This, this is what he does. He's coming to you. The question is, do, do you get it? Well, I want to tell you a true story about one of our men in our church. And I have, I have permission to read you his story. And he, he, uh, it's, a, it's a good story. He said he's about 57 years old, comes every Sunday. I was raised in a Christian home, baptized at 11. I considered myself a Christian, went to church twice on Sunday, Bible study on Wednesday nights, and choir practice on Thursdays. You get the picture? He, boy, was in church, right? At 17, I enrolled in a Bible college, and I graduated second in my class with a pastoral BA. He's got a preaching degree. But my private life was a different story. I was living a lie. My desire to live by the world's standards far outweighed my desires to live by God's standards. I knew the things I'd been taught were true, but I didn't want to live them. And most times, I didn't. Eventually, the hypocrisy was too great to bear. I never really enjoyed going to church or doing mission work or anything unless it satisfied my own agenda. My bitterness grew with each passing year, and so too did my anger. Something hadn't clicked right. And deep inside, I eventually stopped going to church, believing I was just probably beyond redemption. And the path of my life fell into utter chaos, adultery, divorce, deceit, immorality. And each year that passed, the guilt, the condemnation I knew that I lived under, the bitterness and the anger grew until my parents barely even recognized me. I struck out at everyone. I was a manager in a Fortune 500 company making more money, stock options, benefits than I had ever earned in my, my life. Had power, had position, had everything that money could buy. And I was utterly lost in my own misery. And then a coworker and a friend of my wife asked her to come to Harborside Christian Church. Laura was going through the same torments as myself and desperately was seeking God's help. She asked me if I would go, and I said yes, before I really had a chance to think about it. On our first visit to Harborside, the church had just begun the I Have Decided sermon series. You remember that a couple months ago, I Have Decided series? You said something about repentance, Kurt, that I've never considered before. You said, God called believers, not sinners, to repentance. Change your mind, then change your behavior. It stuck in my mind for weeks. I wasn't certain what it meant, but I knew it was important. I had witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in each of the worship services, and I couldn't bring myself to stop attending. There was something different now in my life, something going on in those services that I wanted. No, I needed. I thirsted for the joy that I witnessed all around me. I just knew about everything a man could know about God, but I'll be honest with you, I didn't know God. I was sitting in my car waiting for the stoplight at 19 and golf debate to change when what, was, when what was wrong with my relationship with God struck me like a lightning bolt. In all the years of going to church, in all the years of singing in a choir, in all those four years of going to Bible classes, the Bible had been in my head but not in my heart because I'd never really changed my mind and I hadn't changed my behavior. I had truly never surrendered my life to Christ, or nor had I wanted to change. My wife, ironically, accepted Christ as her personal Savior and was baptized on June the 23rd, 
at Honeymoon Island Beach. But I couldn't completely rejoice in her decision because it left me alone and more guilty than ever before. She found the key to the joy and the faith that sprang spontaneously from the prayers and songs expressed on the beach that night. And I wanted that so badly in my life, but I wasn't sure that I could get there. I went home that night, June 23rd, opened my Bible to Hebrews and read about how Christ made one sacrifice for all times. There were no other avenues to God's grace, no other sacrifices to be offered. The immense importance of it all washed over me like scales that fell off Paul's eyes. They fell off mine too, and I saw myself for the first time. I saw the real me. I'd never really accepted Christ into my life. The next evening, Monday, June 24th, I broke down to my wife in our dining room, expressing the regret for my life, my hardness of heart, the people I had hurt, I despised my sin, and I wanted to serve Jesus for the real time, for the first time. In a flood of tears that night, my wife being a Christian for one day, my wife leads me to Christ. I asked Jesus to be my Lord and to be my Savior. I was baptized again on August 25th, this time on God's terms, not on my own. I see the miracles of my life every day because my eyes now see things the world can't see. I actually feel the power of God in my heart now, not just in my head. And when I read the scriptures now, I'm starved for the knowledge that's been hidden from me when I thought I knew everything there was to know about Jesus. It's like I'm reading the Bible for the very first time. And the proof of his presence is my victory over things I never thought I could ever give up or would ever desire to leave behind. And I'm learning to forgive myself a little bit more each day to accept his grace and not to mistrust the salvation he's promised. Oh, I've had ups and downs since my conversion. Enemy was not pleased, threw open the gates of hell, my past, my shame, my temptations and fear gripped me. But those things have not kept me from moving forward. The real presence of Jesus Christ in my life has made it different this time. It helps me through every trial, not always right away, but often I'm forced to wait upon the Lord. I cry a lot these days, but no longer out of fear or bitterness or or hopelessness. I never have stopped being amazed at just how much God loves me despite my unworthiness. Who am I? My name is Ernie, and today I'm a child of the King. You see, it's grace that he comes to you with again and again and again. It's God's grace, and it's called amazing grace.